next question. I'll come down and read for you, with you. And it is, um, once saved, are you always saved? And can you lose your salvation? Right, that's basically, um, there were two questions that people asked, and we're just going to answer them together. I'll answer that one. Um, this kind of goes piggybacks right on what Silvana was saying. Um, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures first and foremost. John 18, uh, 28 through 30. I give them eternal life that they may never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? It says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. And so a lot of people will use that scripture to say, you know, once you're saved, you're, you're really always saved. Um, and, and I believe that nobody can snatch our salvation from us. It's sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? It, I always tell people like this. If I, sometimes I lose my keys. You ever lose your keys before? It's never fun. Or a wallet. Or, or 2019, you lose your cell phone. Let's, let's, let's make it more applicable, right? You lose your cell phone. Like, there's nothing worse than if you having to leave your house and you can't find your cell phone, right? So you're out there, you're looking for your cell phone, you're looking for it. And that's, biblically, that will never happen with our salvation. We'll never just, like, where to go, we can't find it, who stole it, you know what I mean? Like, nobody's going to steal our salvation from us. But if I were to go over there, right down the street here, there's a bridge over there or that, that goes over the Chattahoochee River, and I took my cell phone out of my pocket and I chucked it as far as I could chuck it into the Chattahoochee River that is actually moving, that cell phone is probably gone. So there's a difference between losing something and throwing it away. You hear me? So, so I want to be very clear on this. We cannot lose our salvation. Like, where'd it go? One day you wake up and it's gone. Like, somebody stole it from us. No. Nothing can snatch us from the hand of the Father. Nothing. But yet, I have free will to take the cell phone out of my pocket and throw it into the ocean. Or throw it wherever I want to throw it, right? And the first lie recorded in the Bible in Genesis, it says this. It says, the serpent said to the woman... Shall you really die? You're not going to really die. And I think a lot of times that's what we think when it comes to like, you know, salvation. Like we say, and we're going to get into some other questions about grace and things like that. Like, well, I'm just going to continue doing what I do. You know what I mean? Like God's got me. And yes, he will forgive us. Yes, he, he, he does, you know what I mean, forgive 70 times, seven times. But sometimes I believe like what we're doing is we're actually taking the grace of God and then throwing it into the Chattahoochee River. You know what I mean? We're throwing away the, the best for us. And I'll read Hebrews 10, 26 through 30 says this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. All right. Verse 27. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of the two or three witnesses. 29, how much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated, at, who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant and sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Did you know that we can insult the spirit of grace? And so just to be clear to answer the question, no, you cannot lose your salvation. But I do believe, you know, and there's plenty of scripture to back it up, that we could, we could turn from the Lord. 
You know what I mean? That we could turn from seeking first the kingdom and we could denounce the Holy Spirit. We could denounce God the Father and walk away from him. Why? Because we have been given this beautiful thing called free will. We really have. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah. So next, go media team. You're letting me know that it's up there and I don't have to walk down. If you are saved and commit suicide, do you go to heaven? That, that, that's a good one. That, that's a real good one. Um, I, I, I will piggyback on, on both of these these questions that, that were asked uh, previous to me. And just I, I love the the analogy that you just gave about the cell phone. That, that was dope. Right. So so everybody in here. Right. You you have a cell phone. Right. You It's, it's yours. You, you're not consciously going and throwing your cell phone into the Chattahoochee River. So when I when I read this question, the, the word that really jumped out to me was the word saved. Right. So, so if you are saved and commit suicide, do you go to heaven? I'm just going to give you a couple scriptures here to, to, to help. John 3, 16, one of my favorite. What does it say? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? It says, whoever, what, B- believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First John 5, 13, this is what it says. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Why, why am I bringing this up again? There should be no question for us who are saved, who are believers, that we have our cell phone. I'll use your analogy, right? That, that we are saved, we, we are covered, right? Romans 8, 30, uh, 38 and 39, it says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ in our Lord Jesus. Why am I bringing this up? Because there, there's something amazing that happens when we are saved, okay? Now, as it relates to committing suicide, I'm just going to be very honest and transparent. We, we, there's a whole bunch that can happen, right? We, have it, has anybody ever heard of these uh, deathbed transformations when we don't know somebody's calling out to the Lord? We, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on. But what I do know is this. When Jesus came, he came to bring us back into connection and into fellowship with the, the Lord. And that right there, that gets me really really excited. I'm going to, I'm going to read this because I think Pastor Scott, you you were kind of talking about, um, you know, the the one thing that we can do that we can guarantee will, will kind of take us away and and allow us to throw our our phone into the river is, is really to have that, um, what, what the Bible calls it unpardonable sin, which is blaspheming of of the Holy Spirit, right? So, so when, when we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that right there, now, that, that might get us out because, again, we're going against what the Holy Spirit says, right? Not, not going against the blood. So I'll, I'll say this. If you're saved and commit suicide, do you go to heaven? Key word being saved, okay? And, and that, that's, that's the key word for all of us. I, I'm glad for the grace of God. I'm glad for, for his blood. I'm glad for his blood that, that, that covers us at all times. I, I'm, I'm glad about that, right? And, and we should all be glad about that blood as well. Last thing I'll, I'll say about, about this is, is, is very simple, this. Um, you know, the, the only thing that we can do knowingly to reject God is by, by or to not get into heaven is by rejecting him in the spirit, period. Can I add a little bit to yep. that just really quick um, about the suicide part? You know, what will lead you to that point of uh, wanting to end your life? You know, and uh, as a believer, because God, uh, Jesus came to give us abundant life. 
So there's, uh, there's no condemnation, but there's much more to learn for yourself to have that, to obtain the abundant life. So I will uh, enroll myself, you know, into learning, training myself, uh, discipleship, learning more about the word, because something I'm missing if I don't have hope, right? Yeah, and I'm going to transition to the next question, but something important to know in all of these questions, including the salvation ones, is that if we believe that God is just and good, like, so as believers, we believe that he's perfect, that he's good, that he's sovereign, so everything that has to do with the sovereignty of God, and um, that he can make no mistakes, that his that his judgment is, is righteous, it's, it's good, it's pure, it's with, you know, out fault, then we just have to trust he's always going to make the right choice. Because people are always asking, well, before Jesus, what happened to the people that died then? Are they saved? Where are they at? God is a just God. He will never do, he cannot do, it's against his nature to do anything that is not right, that is not good, that is not just. And so he will always, he knows our hearts, he knows our minds, he knows us um, deeper than we know ourselves, so he will always do what is right. And so we just have to trust that. Yeah. So the next one is, um, why do Christians say rest in peace? And I'm going to answer that. And nowhere in the Bible does it say, like, the words rest in peace. And we know that, you know, when people pass, there's just a lot of scrambling to comfort people who are still here. Um, people say, you know, God, you know, God's gained an angel. Or, you know, he was missing an angel. And, and we know that we're not angels. <laughs> we're, we were created distinct from the angels. But people say that because, you know, we're trying so hard to comfort the living. Um, so when we look at the word, we don't see the resting in peace. I can give you two verses where you could allude to that, and then I'll, I'll kind of continue to answer. Um, at the end of the book of Daniel, an angel speaks of Daniel's death, and he says, you will rest. And that's in Daniel 12, 3. And then the prophet Isaiah says, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. And that's Isaiah 57 too. And so from there, you can kind of see, you know, where people say that. But at the same time, um, it's kind of still meant as a prayer. Like, may he rest in peace. And that's actually where it comes from. It comes from the Latin where it says... Um, may he or she rest in peace. And so if we know anything about the Catholic doctrine is that they, they think they can pray people, you know, into a place of, of peace. And so the saying it still kind of like creates that assumption, even though it's a phrase that we've all intended, you know, well. So why do Christians say that? There isn't a, a Christian foundation for it, but I think it's just like a lot of things. Like why do Christians say, oh my God, you know, it's just become a really common phrase in the English English language that we all kind of understand what it is, whether it's right or not. Because I'm sure the things that we're responding to and oh my God, isn't really biblical to respond that way. It probably isn't God at all. You know, the things that you usually say, oh my God, to, it's a lot of like our choice against God. And then we're like, oh my God. <laughs> or, you know, it's people exercising that awesome thing free will on the driveway, you know, in the highways and stuff like that, cutting you off. And you're like, oh my God. So there's nothing really Christian about that, but we've adopted it. And so um, that's what I would say that, you know, the basis of it kind of comes from a place of be thinking that you can wish or pray someone in that way, but it, but it doesn't have a, a biblical foundation. Anybody want to chime in? All right. Next question. Can you be gay and saved? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's a, it's a real question for 2019. Um, you know, I'll start by saying this. There's only one criteria that God uses to judge the world, and it's, it's faith in Jesus. 
Like really, like it's, it's faith in Christ. Um, the Bible says who the son is set free is free indeed, right? It also says this in 1 John 5, 12. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. And so let's just make that the criteria first and foremost. Um, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him be, might be saved. That's John three seventeen. Um, it also says this, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. So basically what I'm saying is there's one criteria, right? It's the blood of Jesus. It's faith in the son. Jesus Christ is the bridge. Um, the bad news is that we all deserve to go to hell, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. So when people talk about homosexuality, to me, it's one of many, 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 many different sins. So it, I think when we look at sin on the earth, we look at sins like mountains, you know, like one is way bigger than another. But in God's eyes, they're all the same. You know what I mean? That's why the Bible says we all fall short. So we're all guilty. Uh, Psalm 14 says, there's none righteous amongst you, amongst you, not one. Like when I look around the room, I look on the stage, I'm like, no, none of us are righteous. We're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, even Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. This is a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So what the question really boils down to is this. Is it possible to believe in Jesus and be homosexual at the same time? The answer is yes and no. All right? Um, the Bible's clear that homosexuality is a sin, right, as well as a bunch of other sins. Um, the question is this, am I in sin, but I desire freedom for, from it? Or am I in sin thinking that God is going to just continue to forgive me and I want to stay in that sin and I want to make excuses that, you know, and make the Bible say that it's okay for me to stay in my sin. I think those are two totally different mindsets and heart conditions of someone who's in sin. I'll give you an example. Let me switch it from homosexuality to addiction, right? I, we deal with a lot of people who are addicts. And I, you deal with people who, who have addictions, but they make excuses on why they have the addiction. And they're going to, you know, tell you every reason of why they, you know, need to stay in that addiction. Or there's people who are like, you know what? I'm addicted, but I desperately want to be free. Whole different mindset. Whole different heart condition. Right? Yeah. Um, so here at Crossover ATL, right, we take the viewpoint um, that there's an, ex an important difference between feeling gay, right, or having these tendencies, as we call them, and actually acting out on it. There's, there's two different, you know what I mean, things. Or if you have acted out on it, wanting to be free from it. You know, it's something, it's something totally different. So with any sinful behavior... The transgression comes not in being tempted in it, but in willfully engaging in the activity that is contrary to life in the kingdom of God. It really is. So when you're, when you're actually willfully, you know what I mean, taking part in it, whether it's homosexuality or really any other sin. Like, let's just be real. Fornication, drunkenness, like you name it. There's a plenty of us to stand up, stand up in your name. And so, you know... So, yes, to answer the question, you can be a Christian and struggle with homosexuality tendencies at the same time. You can. 
But I think if, if you're looking for the Bible to agree with you, you know what I mean? Or, or Jesus or God to agree with you and say that it's okay to continue in the sin, I think that I would say no. Um, engaging in any sin is the problem. It's no different than, like I said, any other sin. So I hope that answered the question. Can you, can you be a Christian and be gay? All right, next question. Can you live together and say in the eyes of God that you are one? Uh, I'm, I'm going to answer this one pretty quick. No? Okay. No. No. Okay. Uh, just, let, let, let me go just, just a step tad further with this. Um, the thing that we're looking at, it, it says, in the eyes of God, can we be one? Everybody say one. one. Uh, all right. So, so when we think about one, we think about a marriage union where the two become one, that's found where uh, he speaks about that in Genesis 2.24. It's also seen um, in Ephesians 5.31. But it says, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is speaking about a covenant relationship. If you are living together, you're not in a covenant relationship. So can you be one outside of a covenant relationship? The answer is No. It's a pretty, it's pretty, that, that one's pretty cut and dry, even though I, I think in, in our world, in this context that we live in, we, we try very hard to, you know, oh, that's my boo, that's my this, that's my that. And, and, and all, all of those things, okay, great. But it's, it's still not a covenant where the two have, bec- have, have become one and they are, they are in a, that, that union between God and, and them, a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship. So the answer is no. Did I answer that? Is that okay? All right. Next, is abortion murder? Okay. We really have six minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, this is a very important subject, like a life and death type of subject. Um, I, I, I would like to take a little bit of time on this because I would like to define first abortion and then murder. Um, and then see what the Word of God says about it. Uh, abortion, as the Webster Dictionary defines it, is the termination of a pregnancy resulting in the death of the fetus. A murder is a crime of unlawfully killing a person in a premeditated manner. In other words, by fully conscious, willful intent and planning. But this is exactly what happens when someone is contemplating abortion. This person has a fully conscious, willful intent and plan to bring about death of her fetus. The only difference in this case is that abortion is a lawful and legal uh, crime in this country. Abortion, however, was not always legal in the United States. It was legalized in 1973 due to the Roe v. Wade court case in which Justice Blackmun gave priority to the personal choice and right to, uh, to privacy of the women over the life and the value of the unborn. But who is this unborn, after all, that anyone can decide very easily to end his or her life? Is this uh, fetus, as Webster describes it, a human being? Because that is the question. If, if the unborn is a human being, then there's no justification for abortion. Um, because to kill an innocent human being is always wrong. And this we know not only in our conscience, but we also know it from God's word. Um, we know that the, 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 many people try to uh, say, well, it's not a person yet, but it is, it is a human being. From the time of conception, which is within 24 hours of intercourse, which is right away, a new human being is formed. This human individual has all the genetic information. I don't know if you knew this. 
needed from his development from zygote to adulthood. That means that the gender, the bone structure, the eye, the hair, their skin color, the preferences or susceptibilities to certain foods, everything is already there, the DNA. All he needs to do or her is to grow and develop. This unborn being has in very, uh, has intrinsic value because of his human nature, not because of his development. And therefore his life is, or her life is sacred. Now, what does the scripture say about this? Uh, in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis uh, 1, verse 27 to 28, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and fem female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the air, earth and govern it. Uh, later, we see that after no, after the um, well, the people corrupted themselves, and violence and martyr were very prevalent in, on the earth. So God decided to start over with. Uh, remember the flood? Yeah. After the flood, He decided to start over with Noah's family, and He told He told them this. Genesis nine. This is at the very beginning of the Bible, five to seven. I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. This is very strong. As we can see, human life is also sacred in God's eyes. And he takes it very serious. Um, we know that the sixth commandment in Exodus, you know, 20, 13 says you must not murder. And we take that sometimes lightly because we're not going, you know, against someone taking their life right like that. But we don't realize uh, just by reading that verse that um, even throughout all the Old Testament, the martyrs are very, um, if not the most serious wrong before God. And he always requires retribution. That's a punishment. So in conclusion, uh, we, can, uh, we, we know that abortion is murder. It is the killing of an innocent human being who is created in the image of God. Now, so now, so what do we do now? What can we do if we have committed already an abortion? Um, though you may be legally innocent in the eyes of the American society or the law, you are more morally guilty of murder before God. This calls for what? For repentance. You need to ask God forgiveness. Not only the women, by the way, but the men and whoever else was in agreement to the abortion. God is a just God. He punishes sin, but he's also a God of love and compassion who shows mercy to all those who repent. He not only forgives, but he also restores our lives by removing all condemnation and guilt. And with this we know because Romans says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you have been uh, um, in that situation, I will encourage you to to do this, to come before the Lord, to ask for forgiveness, to to bring all this uh, guilt because there's guilt and condemnation and to just receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Start over. If you need some counseling, there is post-traumatic uh, counseling for those who have had an abortion because it does affect the mind and the emotional state of the women. So there is hope, but uh, that's that will be the answer. Amen. That's a great answer. And just so you know, I, we should have prepped this beforehand. Um, because God uses his word, right? And so at the end, which we're going to hopefully end in the next 10 minutes or so, we're actually going to pray. All right? And I believe that the word is hitting a lot of our hearts. You know, again, we're all, we all see ourselves in the scriptures. You know, and the Holy Spirit knows how to uh, surgically, you know what I mean, expose things in our heart 
so that he can remove those stones or remove those tears. And so before we're done, we're going to pray. Um, but I want to try to answer as many questions as we can in the time that we have. Yeah, and, and that's why I love um, Palm Sunday, which is today, and then leading up to Easter, because we know that we had the perfect lamb who took on the sins of the world. And so in that, you know, we we can have the confidence that we've been talking about in our salvation and in our life in him and in his sovereignty. Um, next question, can you still sin and say, I am living under grace? I think I answered that question a little bit in the last one, um, but I'm going to encourage everybody to read Romans chapter 6. Um, it talks about, like, shall we continue in sin? Certainly not. So I'm just going to kind of leave it at that. But read the whole chapter. All right? Write this down, Romans chapter 6. All right? Read that whole chapter just to encourage everybody. So it, it answers it right in the first question. Shall we, it talks about grace before that. And he's like, shall we just continue in sin if grace abounds? And Paul's like, certainly not. So, um, you know, it, and again, it's, it's the willful act of continuing in the same sin. It's not saying if I sin one time, you know what I mean? Like I've lost my salvation. No, that's not what it means. It, it just means like, shall we just take advantage of it? So I just continue on wilding out, you know, since Jesus has covered a multitude of sins. Not as so, so no, the answer is no. All right. And, and don't feel like if one of your questions are the end ones that, you know, we're talking about rushing, we're, we're going to, you know, answer that. And then this is pretty much the end of service. So no, no worries and no worries to our panelists. <laughs> um, does God know beforehand who will go to heaven? Yes, uh, he does because he's an omniscient God. He knows all things. That's part of his nature. Uh, however, this question talks about Calvinism, uh, Right, yeah, refers to that. Asking basically okay. what Calvinists okay. believe um, in relation well, to that. Just, just so you know, the Calvinists support the doctrine of predestination. That means that you have been elected, you know, already, so you will be saved. Um, and those who haven't, were not. <laughs> there is another. Uh, the Arminists, you know, are on the other side. They they take all the responsibility of salvation. And they put it on the on the persons. But I want to say this: um, since creation, God gave mankind free will. Again, the ability, to, the ability to choose, but this ability does not come without the responsibility to choose well. A good example is the Israelites. We know he, they were the chosen people of God, right? But even though they were clearly the chosen people of God, they have to continually choose uh, on their own to follow him and to obey him, which they didn't do many times. So regardless, um, uh, they're all, we are all accountable, and they were accountable for their own choice, uh, Calvinists or not. So we will not be held, um, oh, I'm sorry, um, According to Romans 1, all that may be known about God, he says, has been made plain to us. His qualities, his power, his nature, people are without excuse. We know who he is and that we are to worship and serve him. But yet some do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That's verse 28. And choose to believe a lie instead and follow his own ways. Um, that's a sin nature. But salvation has to do with God's work bringing redemption to us from that sin nature. Nevertheless, we still have to choose this gift voluntarily. That's, John, that's in John for, uh, 1, 12. And John three sixteen. also that we know, it says, you know, for um, uh, God sent his son to, so that, how, how did I say that? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, right, and have eternal life. So whoever believes, so whoever, whoever can come to Jesus, however, to, yeah, to Jesus, however, he does know who will come. Uh, both the scriptures um, say that, uh, and John, uh, also Romans 10, 9 and, 9 and 10, if you have time to read it, they state that all those who believe will be saved. God will never reject anyone who believes in him or is sick in him. So that idea of just being elected because, but you are seeking God and you're not elected, you will not be saved. It's not you know, unbiblical. We need to be okay also with not understanding everything, but we can trust God to do the right thing because of his nature. So I will answer that. Yeah. Um, the next one, uh, do Mormons and Calvinists have the Holy Spirit? That's... Oh, uh, easy one. <laughs> uh, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the seal of salvation for all those who believe. That's in Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14. So if a person belongs to Christ, he has the Spirit. If he doesn't, then he doesn't. What does the Mormons believe? Do they believe in Christ? They do not believe the Christ of the Bible. Uh, they claim to be Christians, but they deny essential truth of Christianity like the Trinity. They believe that Jesus was created. And um, now that he was uh, God in the flesh. And salvation is not by grace, but by works. So uh, what can we do about the Mormons? We can share the true gospel of Jesus Christ to them, according to John 3.16. Um, the Calvinists, uh, because the question says Calvinists can have the Holy Spirit. Again, if they, have, if they belong to Christ, they follow Jesus, they accept to Jesus, they can. Um, in Ephesians 1, 11, to 18, uh, 11 through 14, it says, In him we were also chosen. It's interesting. We were chosen. It's, that's what the Calvinists defend. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Um, and then I'm going to go on a little farther. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe you were marked... This is where it comes from. In him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, who, who a deposit, who is a deposit that is guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. So I think that answers the question. Yes. Um, next question. What constitutes a reprobate mind? All right. So a reprobate mind. Three scriptures that, that I'm just going to give to you so we can have a foundation of where it comes from. Uh, first one's Romans um, 128, it says this, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, that's, that's part of it, right? God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. That's the first scripture. Second one is 2 Timothy 3, 8. This is what it says. Now, Giannis and Hombres withstood Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. And then the third scripture is uh, from Titus 1.16. It says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being uh, a, a, a bim. Yes, yes, that word right there. And disobedient and, uh, and unto every work uh, reprobate. So when we look at this and we speak about someone with a reprobate mind, these are people of the faith who are denying God. And in denying God, they pollute their good works. So, uh, so those who do not retain the, etern the eternal in their knowledge eventually take on that thing that we call a reprobate mind. So the result of this approach is, is that state called reprobate, okay? So that's, that's in essence what it is. I'm hoping that answered the yeah. question uh where was jesus during his youth since it was not biblically documented <laughs> where was he <laughs> um we have to be careful not to speculate 
okay? Uh, the word, God has given us the word of the, all the 66 books that we have available to us to read for a reason. And if it's not there, there's just not bother so much trying to, you know, find out. Uh, there's enough there for us to learn and read and know about. Uh, other than Luke uh, chapter 2, 41 to 52, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' youth. Uh, in this portion of the scripture, it talks about how uh, Joseph and Mary, you know, took uh, Jesus. Uh, he was 12 years old to celebrate his first feast in preparation for his uh, bar mitzvah, right before, you know, his 13th, according to the Jewish tradition. Um, we also... Uh, see uh, Jesus uh, remember in the temple uh, talking to the other um, the, to the Jews and sharing with them uh, this is in Luke 2 51 um, we know about the baptism uh, that he had at age 30 uh, that's uh, also in Luke 2 so beyond that all we know is that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God not much is said in the scripture um, and this is obviously uh, what God determined for us to know. You know, there are some extra biblical writings which contain stories of Jesus' youth, like uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, for example. But we have no way of knowing whether any of these stories are true and reliable. Uh, God chose not to tell us much about Jesus' childhood, so we had to just trust him that nothing occurred that we needed to know about. And uh, just so you know, all these books, the Apocrypha, there's a lot of other writings that are not included in the, in the Christian Bible. In our Bible, I have, um, I mean, the Catholics read them, other people read them, but they are not part of the canon. You know, they haven't been, um, you know, counted as um, spirit-led and uh, books that come from God. So I would just encourage you to read what's in the word and be satisfied with it. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Um, do all um, or does anything good come from God or is it just the things that are good and perfect? And what is considered good to God versus good in our eyes? And so in answering that, um, I like to say, you know, we can have goodness in us and even desire to do good, but true goodness comes from the one who is perfectly good and wants good things for all people. So our goal should be to show the goodness of God to other people. So what is considered good to God versus good in our eyes? Well, uh, a lot of ways to know the goodness of God is to read about it because it's all throughout the scripture, you know, and it does say that all, you know, good and perfect things come from him. But we should also remember that good things may not always show us um, happy experiences. So there are things that we might experience that we do not feel are good. And so it's sometimes hard for us because we're not all knowing and we don't see the beginning from the end to see certain things that we would call good. And that's why the only person who can define good is God. Because when we read Romans 8, 28, that has been read today multiple times, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So there are things that we sometimes may feel that are not good, but then when it all comes around, it was meant for our good. And this will answer some of the questions that are coming later about, you know, why is there evil in the world? And even though we've all talked about that, but I want to leave you with... Um, <clears throat> one illustration that will help you understand all of it that Rabbi um, Zacharias does a lot when people ask him this. And he, t he tells of a story of, of, a, of a family in a village who had a son. And um, this son, uh, 
one day, you know, was, was kicked by a horse or something and, and, you know, it broke, he broke his leg and the neighbors all came around and they were like, what bad fortune, you know, that, you know, that happened to him. And then, um, then they, um, came back and, and something else happened and they said, oh, what good fortune, you know, that these, that these people came and that they're with us in the village. Then there was another day, um, that people came looking for child soldiers and they didn't take his son because his leg was broken. And so all those neighbors who had called that bad fortune didn't really have a point of reference because they didn't see the whole picture. You know, so who are we to call what's good and bad? There are a lot of things that are very, you know, clear in the scripture that they're good. But the definition of good to us and in, in, as humans really varies from where we live and where, you know, we're at. If you tell me, <laughs> no offense here, that I'm um, eating pig feet and this, that, I'm like, I don't think that's good but you go to other places they're like that's amazing it's the best you know and even in my culture they put it in the beans and they think it's amazing um you go to you go to other countries and and they feel you know that there's certain things that children do that they feel you know is is really good um like um binding their necks to be tall and we're like that's child abuse here you know and they'd they'd go call you know dhs on you and so we can never define what is good or not only knowing god can we know good because he is good and only trusting in him and loving him do we know that all things work for good. And so many times, you know, it is not for us to call certain things in our lives or experiences or situations good or bad. We just have to trust in his sovereignty, knowing that he is in control, that we've placed our lives in his hands, and that no matter what those experiences are, they will all work for good. Because like we said, you know, one day, you know, a broken leg may seem like a really bad thing, but then looking later when they're trying to snatch you for this, you know, army, it's a great thing, you know? And so that, that helps explain all of that. Did you want to say? Okay. Um, next question. What does living hope look like right now on earth? Future hope of eternity is one thing, but what does it look like now? And how do we explain this to an unbeliever? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, First of all, I think you explain it by living it out. Like, I think that's the best explanation is being a, uh, having an exemplary, uh, example life of seeking first the kingdom and living that abundant life that Jesus promised for you. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's perfect. doesn't mean that everything's going to go the way you want it to go. But there is a such thing as a resurrected, empowered life. Right, that we when we walk with the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and we get to live out this life literally every single day with his peace, with his joy, with his wisdom, with his love, and when we're going out and giving everything away that we receive, right? So the Bible says freely receive, freely give. And when we're walking out this resurrected life, like I believe that we become um, the light of the world, right? The city, the Bible describes us as a city set up on a hill. And so something about a city on a hill, you ever look at these mountains out here? Sometimes you're like, man, look at that house up there. Right? You ever seen that? Like, man, look at that house way up at the top. It's huge. And there's something that is, there's something about like houses on the hill or a city set on a hill that catches your eye. And so living out this abundant life, living out this resurrected lifestyle, it catches other people's eye. Romans 8, 14 says this, for those that are led by the spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit received um, brought about your ad adoption to sonship. 
And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so we share in his sufferings on this earth, but we also share in his glory on this earth. Right? And we, we, uh, this, this eternal life, this abundant life starts now. Right? I think a lot of times we preach a future gospel, like when we die, we'll go live with him. That is true. But you actually have abundant life and resurrected power now in the name of Jesus. So we're called to live this abundant life. We're also, um, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that you may have life and life more abundantly. So what does that abundant life look like? It has nothing to do with material things. It has everything to do with boldness, love, joy, wisdom, peace, the fruits of the spirit. Okay? And those things are the most attractive. If you don't know that. Sometimes we're trying to, you know, get these really dope cars. And there's nothing wrong with nice cars and nice houses, nice clothes. But the most attractive things in this world is the fruits of the spirit of God. All right? We also have this overcoming life. Not only do we have an abundant life, we're called to overcome, right? Romans 8, 37, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We also have this hopeful life, right? That no matter what happens, we know that all things work together, right? According to those that love him. And so we know that we, we have hope eternally. We also have hope in today and tomorrow and yesterday. Like, so we, we should be the most hopeful people in the world, as believers in Jesus Christ. Like, we really should. And if you're not exemplifying that, if you're not living that out, there's something is off. You need to be have the, the most hope out of everybody in the name of Jesus. So I think that's how you, you describe it or explain it to a non-believer about living this thing out. Awesome. Um, what is an appropriate biblical response in, to religious pluralism in society? Uh, much of society is comfortable accepting uh, that all religions are equally and legitimately effective for salvation, right? Uh, what's very uncomfortable today and problema problematic is accepting that there's only just one way for salvation. Uh, we have to understand that the heart of this unbelief uh, is sin, is the human nature, human rebellion against God and his ways and the pursuit of human autonomy. Uh, we want to decide, right? We don't want to submit. Um, but Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. John 14, uh, 6. So no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the exclusive claim of Christianity. That's, this is what we believe. You know, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way. So uh, what happens is that a lot of people are really dissatisfied with um, religion in general. And um, also there's an awareness of uh, just different other religions, you know, especially the Eastern ones in our culture. And also we are very, you know, today's uh, the tolerance topic, right, is very <laughs> hot. And uh, so we are trying to be very tolerant towards each other. So we accept beliefs that are foreign beliefs or just not ha don't have anything to do with, with our Christianity. But uh, we have to be very careful. Uh, we as Christians have to be very careful, and we have to understand that those things are very popular and attractive in today's society. Uh, but so the appropriate unbiblical, because that was the question, response to plur religious pr pr pluralism will be to share the truth of the gospel. Simple as that. 
Second uh, Peter 3, 9 says, For the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Most religions uh, have a particular belief of what, about um, what's the nature of, uh, like, what's the problem in humanity, um, how, how to fix it. You know, and Christian Christianity begins with a personal God as a creator. We know that. It teaches that the problem in humanity is sin, right? Which is the deliberate moral rebellion against God. And that one needs salvation from sin and, um, I'm sorry, and if... And its consequence, which is eternal damnation and separation from God. God's solution, he doesn't just, you know, tell us the, the truth of it all. But he gives us a solution. He provides for us, uh, for us a solution um, to the problem of sin, which is solved through the sacrifice of Jesus, as we know, uh, on the cross and his resurrection. For that reason, salvation in, Christian, is, in Christianity is based on God's grace and faith in Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We know this. Um, we also have to know how to defend Jesus historically, you know, and uh, his, his person biblically. Uh, he has fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, you know, made before his birth. The Bible, you know, historically, he, all the prophecies have been, he fulfilled them. He lived a sin, sin, sinless life. This can be historically proven. He also had a life of miracles, and he, dies, he died and rose triumphantly out of the grave. This is all other writings outside of the Bible will, you know, agree with this. Um, and so Jesus alone claimed and proved to be deity. Nobody else did. So though there are many religions, only one has to be true. Although there might be uh, some truth in other religions, you know, uh, Christianity holds the absolute truth as is told to us in the Bible. Um, we have to be very careful not to compromise the truth. I always encourage people, including myself, to read the Word of God. We need to know what the Bible is saying. Otherwise, we are lost. Anyone can tell us anything about anything. New Age is very appealing to a lot of people. You know, the idea of the universe or the idea of other things. And sometimes even Christians are following other ideas. So you have to be very careful and just stick to the truth and um, uh, not to cave in, you know, to all these other ideas. Yeah. Um, what is an appropriate response to biblical oppression, meaning using context and scripture to justify oppression like slavery or political agendas, etc.? I think we're coming to an end, right? There's just yeah. one more question. Yeah. Yes. So this is a very good question because I've, I've heard this many, many times. Uh, people, especially uh, uh, African-American, you know, uh, people are very uncomfortable, you know, the way... Uh, some uh, people have used the scripture, you know, to endorse slavery. So, um, I want to say this. Many have and continue to ma manipulate the scripture to fit their agenda. This will happen. This has happened. Uh, though they might quote a passage that is indeed in the scripture, it doesn't mean that God's word is saying or, con or condoning what they are claiming. People take things out of context all the time. It is very important to read the Bible and to read it in context. In addition, I also say in this, in this subject especially that it's important for us to know God and his nature. Who is God, right? Let's take a slavery. So we're familiar with American slavery here in the South. Um, but how does that differ from the slavery that is uh, in the Bible? A slavery in the South was uh, characterized by racial discrimination, injustice, brutality, and devaluation of humanity, correct? Slavery in the Bible 
is mainly understood as indentured service. What is that? It's a voluntary servanthood as a means to pay a debt. So this was very much acceptable in those days. Uh, the Israelites, for example, who were poor and did not have a, pay, a way to repay will employ themselves for domestic work. This is in Leviticus 19, 9 to 10, Deuteronomy 24, 20 to 21, and Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 8. This was morally and culturally acceptable. Nevertheless, those that had these servants were still expected to abide under the Mosaic law that had regulations concerning this activity. Uh, for example, the servanthood was only uh, until the debt was paid off or up to the seventh year at which time the servant was, had to be released. This is in Deuteronomy uh, 15. So the biblical regulations concerning slaves reflect the moral concern for God's image bearers. The fact that the law of Moses set a time limit for debt service to be no more than six years speaks of the God-given moral value of a person's freedom. It wasn't the point for them to just be slaves forever. God's ideal for Israel was not poverty. He didn't want the, po the poor to suffer. He needed to borrow. But he had to have a way to, to pay back, right? But that wasn't also the idea to be servant. Therefore, the Mosaic law kept this um, poverty and servanthood from becoming institutionalized in society. It also didn't allow uh, uh, distinctions, you know, exceptions, uh, hierarchically, you know, talking about the differences between the poor and the rich. In other nations, however, at the same time, slaves uh, were treated as property. And we know this, right, Egypt and all that. But in Israel, they had legal human rights. So um, even the Israelites were not allowed to enslave each other. It was very interesting. And no kidnapping was allowed. Uh, in contrast, there was others, like I said, you know, even in Hinduism that will institute uh, institutionalize, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, slavery within their their religious uh, beliefs. Like we see the different uh, castes, you know, that some have to be servants forever. So all through our scripture, uh, God's ideal for equality and freedom of the human being is preserved because we bear his image. So we cannot just c quote a passage, you know, that talks about uh, this type of slavery in the Bible and just uh, try to apply it to, to people today or, or before. That's not, that's taking a, the scripture out of context. That's good. So we're going to answer one more question, but I want you to know if you ask a question, we will respond um, via text the answer that if we didn't get to share. And if you if you asked questions this morning, or if you still want to, we want to be able to answer those. That's the whole point of the series is giving us biblical foundation. So you will get your answer. So let's end with this one and then uh, we'll pray. What is the meaning of John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is this verse referencing heaven? How do we combat non-believers who argue against this belief? So I think you have to read um, John 13 to understand where, where he was talking about, just the context. But I'm going to read basically starting in verse 1 all right, in 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. My father's house has many rooms. If there were, if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may also be where I am. This is Jesus speaking. You know the way, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So now he's saying, you know the way, right, to the place where I'm going. All right. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. 
So how could we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not know him and have seen him. Or you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. He's talking to Jesus, right? Philip, Philip says, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus says, do you not know me, Philip? Even after I've been amongst you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus speaks to himself as this bridge. So the question is, is it talking about heaven? Yeah, he's talking about eternity. He's talking about him being the path, the way unto eternity, unto everlasting life, unto relationship with the Father. And he's saying that he prepares a place for us. And the beautiful thing about following Jesus is his grace and his love and his mercy. That, you know, we started this whole thing today saying, you know, like we all fall short, right? We all fall short. And so I think a lot of things that were spoken about, the reason why a lot of people don't talk about this stuff is because it hurts sometimes. Because we feel this condemnation and we feel ashamed and we feel guilty. But the good news of the gospel is, you know, Jesus wipes away and washes away our sin and our guilt and our shame and our condemnation. Like we're moving into this Easter season and Easter represents to me the greatest news of all time. Jesus dying on behalf of his children and raising from the dead. And I love the scripture. We've said it probably several times. The Bible says, therefore, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And see, do you know that love covers sin, but, but the blood of Jesus washes away the sin. Right? I stain a lot of my clothes. I don't know what it is about eating that I just drip everything on my clothes. I don't know if there's any men that can relate to me. But it's one thing to take, you know, a magic marker and cover that stain up. It's a whole other thing to spray some Tide on that joker or put something on that and throw it in the wash and it come out like just bling, like new. And you will never know that that stain was there. And see, that's what the blood of Jesus does for us. There's, a, there's an accuser of the brethren who's the enemy who always wants to remind us of the things that we've done. And we always hear those little whispers in our ear and in our minds. You know what I mean? You're guilty. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're not worthy. What are you doing here on a Sunday? Why are you in ministry? You can't be a minister. Like, listen, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie. And if we can't be real here, where can we be real? If we can't ask these real questions and get real answers, where can we be real? And here's the, here's the good news. Everybody on the stage don't have it all figured out. We don't. But we'll seek the Lord together. This is the church. We seek the Lord together for the answers that we all need. He has all the answers. And we have access to him. 
And so I just feel led to pray right now. I believe that God wants to change our minds and, and for us to really lay some things down that we've been grieving over for a long time, that we've been, you know, like, like feeling like condemned. And the Bible is clear. This is a promise from heaven. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those that are what? In Christ Jesus. When I look around the room, I see a bunch of people in Christ Jesus. So we're in him. And in him, there's, there's, there's liberty. There's freedom. There's access to healing. There's access to wholeness. There's access to restoration. There's access to deliverance. There's access to all the things that we need while we're on this earth. And so I just really feel, I just feel this heaviness. Like we're talking about some heavy things, but I feel this heaviness in the room. And so I just want to pray because the Bible says that his anointing breaks the yoke, the yoke of oppression, right? And a yoke is something that was put upon oxen that tread, that, that you know, that, that, that treaded the grain, that, you know what I mean? That broke up the ground, the hard ground. And it was something that attached to another oxen and guided it a certain way. So sometimes our sin attaches itself to us, or we attach ourselves to our sin, and our sin is what's guiding us. Even though we've been forgiven, it's been washed away, but we've been reminded of it so much that we carry it with us. The reminder of the things that we've done. And guess what? This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus doesn't even remember when he washes it away. He don't. So we're over here continuing to pray about the same things that he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's under my blood. That's why it's not even under the blood. It's washed away by the blood. And so I just want to end this service with prayer. And it's really a serious time that we get to commune with God. We get to be with him and talk to him. And if we could be real in the, in the room, all of us have things we could, you know, lay down. And so let's just go to the Lord in prayer for a moment. All right, we're not going to do an altar call. We're not going to ask nobody to raise your hands because it's, it's all of us. So, Father God, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit just cleanse us, that you wash away all fear, that you wash away all iniquity, all sin, all condemnation, all lies of the enemy in Jesus' name, Lord. Just make that your prayer. Just say, wash me with your Holy Spirit. Cleanse me. Some of us need to give them something because we've been holding on to this, this action that we've done a long time ago, this thing that has been bothering us. Maybe it wasn't you that did it. Maybe somebody did it to you and you're holding on to unforgiveness. Right? Today's the day you have to lay that down. You have to forgive that person. Because it's yoked, it's yoked upon you, and it is guiding you. And he says that he breaks the yokes, right? He opens up the doors of the prisons. So, Father God, I thank you that you've given us the keys to the kingdom. 
And Lord, we bind up every insecurity, every doubt, every fear in this room in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for full restoration of our hearts and our spirit, man, in our, in our minds in the name of Jesus, Lord. I thank you, Father, that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. I need you all to say, I am not condemned. Uh, God does not condemn me. Jesus does not condemn me. The Holy Spirit liberates me to be able to go into the world and make disciples. I am free through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to speak this over. You are free through the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you, God, that your love covers sin, but I thank you that your blood washes away everything, Father. Your word says all the old things pass away. All, listen, all the old things pass away, and all things through the Holy Spirit become brand new. And I pray, Father, that the newness of life come upon every person's heart, mind, and soul in this room right now, and they experience you, God, in a new way, that you fill us, God, with your Holy Spirit, God, and fire, Lord, right now, Father. Anoint your church for the work of ministry, Lord, in the city of Atlanta, God. Break off all the old. Break off the stone and the, the shells and remove the costumes and the masks so that we can stand as sons and daughters of the Most High King. Mm. I just see the Lord hugging you. But it's not just one person. I see the whole family. I see the Lord wrapping his arms around your family. Because he's the, he's the good father in heaven. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Let's just take one more minute. Just pray to yourself right where you're at. Allow the ministry of the Holy Spirit to penetrate those deep places. Healing, Lord Jesus. Come on. Lord, even though we don't deserve it, Lord. You died for us. And what we do deserve, you took it upon yourself. Instead of us having to take it for ourselves. You took our life, our lives, so that we could take on yours. We're all Barabbas in this room. You chose to climb on a cross and let the guilty man and woman walk free. And for this, we thank you today. We thank you that there is hope in your word. We thank you, God, that there is hope in this Konania, in this family, God, in this gathering of the saints, Lord, that we encourage one another to seek first you. And walk this thing out together.
knowing that none of us are perfect, but you are. And that's the reason why we follow you. We love you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. It's just for 30 more seconds. Just tell him how much you love him in this room. Thank you, Father. All Everybody out loud, audibly. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy, Lord Jesus.